Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, I just really love that song. It was so powerful for me. And uh, it's got me wondering, where would I be if God wasn't faithful? So that's a really good um, thing to sort of be thinking about as we move towards the sermon. We'll be talking about that a little bit today also. But right now, I want to introduce our storyteller for the day. And I'm not sure who all of your favorite teachers were, but I want to introduce you to your new favorite teacher, Lauren Dolby. Come on up and tell us a story. Good morning. My name is Lauren Dolby, and I've been attending Evergreen for the last five years. Today, my story is about how I got the job I never applied for. I've wanted to be a teacher since I was in second grade. I attended Seattle Pacific University and graduated in the spring of 2012 with a degree in K-8 elementary education. I spent spring quarter of senior year applying to a few open positions, but then had to wait until August for the majority of hiring for the next school year to begin. The summer after graduation was full with trips, teaching summer school at a small private school, and taking kids to Young Life Camp. Throughout the summer, I hadn't spent too much time thinking about the fall yet, and as a planner, that was not typical of me. I think I was trying to avoid the unknown of the future by focusing on what was right in front of me. In the third week of August, I came home from Young Life Camp to an empty house. This was rare, considering that I was living in a house with seven other roommates at the time. My emotions took over as I went from a week of social high at Young Life Camp to being all alone. On top of that, as I began to realize that I had no plans for the rest of summer and no clue what the fall held for me, I was overwhelmed. In less than two weeks, my lease would be up, and while I had potential roommates, we didn't know where we would be living, and I didn't know how I'd be paying for it because I didn't know where or even if I'd be working at all. As all of these emotions and thoughts flooded my heart and mind, I found myself crying on the bathroom floor. It was one of those ugly cries, and I really hoped that none of my seven roommates would be returning home soon. <laughs> I felt lost and scared and utterly alone, and all I could do was cry out to God. The next day, I continued the ongoing job hunt. At this point, most schools started in less than two weeks after Labor Day. While my lifelong plan had been to teach elementary school, throughout college, God began to change my heart um, and opened me up to the idea of teaching middle school math. I applied to both elementary and middle school math positions, but ended up pursuing middle school positions because who really wants to teach middle school? And who wants to teach middle school math? So since there were fewer people vying for those positions, I, that seemed more hopeful than the black hole of job pools for elementary teaching positions. I stumbled upon a position here on Mercer Island at Islander Middle School. Earlier in the spring, I had applied for a third grade position in the district. And at the time, our school district was still living in the dark ages of paper applications being mailed in. Nothing was online. I distinctly remember dropping off the application in a manila envelope at the post office in Ballard. So when I found this middle school math job, I didn't know if I had to do that whole thing all over again. So I called HR and asked what I needed to do to apply to the position at IMS. They said they only needed a new cover letter specific to the position. Okay, that's easy. Yet for some reason, I didn't do it. I just was like, oh, I'll wait a day or two. On Friday evening, I was babysitting and got a voicemail from one of the co-principals. She asked if I'd like to come in on Monday to discuss the 0.2 FTE position at IMS. Two thoughts. First, I never sent my cover letter. I never applied for the position. To this day, my only thought is that because I had called HR, they had pulled my file and sent what I had to my principal when she um, inquired about applicants. Second thought. 0.2 FTE, I hadn't realized that it was a part-time position. And it wasn't just part-time, it would only be teaching one class. This was the day before everyone had a smartphone, so once I put the kids to bed, I jumped on the family's computer and confirmed that it was a part-time position. It was also at this time that I discovered that school did not start after Labor Day on Mercer Island. It started the following Wednesday, less than a week. I called back and said yes to the interview. However, going into the interview, I felt like I already had to know if I really wanted the job. The school year started in less than 48 hours. If other school districts started a week later, could I miss out on another full-time opportunity? I decided that if I was offered the position, I'd only take it if it was um, teaching in the morning so that I could have an afternoon or evening job. 
On Monday afternoon, I met with our two co-principals, and we moved quickly from interview questions to logistics, and soon they began talking about coming in the next day for professional development. Finally, one of them asked me to take a step outside the room so they could talk about me behind my back. That's what he actually said. Um, I might have been a little bit nervous, but I felt confident in what was unfolding. When I came back in, they offered me the job, and I quickly said yes. After talking logistics, they confirmed that I actually wanted it. I think they thought I was crazy. Um, and even later that evening, when one of them called about paperwork, they confirmed again that this is what I wanted. But I felt at peace and excited, and I trusted that God would provide from that point forward. Over the course of that following year, I took on the role as a paraprofessional in the English language learner class, was asked to sub multiple days a week in the building before being asked to teach two sixth grade health classes, and finally one class of seventh grade leadership. I finished off the second half of the year working full time, and I never had to seek a second job. Six and a half years later, I'm continuing to teach sixth and seventh grade math at IMS. Thankfully, after two years, I got to drop the health classes. I never imagined myself teaching middle school math, but I feel like I'm doing exactly what God has made me to do. Also, I'm thankful that I took this leap of faith that may have looked foolish to others in, this ways of, in the ways of this world. Thank you for listening to my story. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Judges. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading verses 16 through 19 from chapter 2 in the New Revised Standard Version. Then the Lord raised up judges, who delivered them out of the power of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen even to their judges, for they lusted after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their ancestors had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. They did not follow their example. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he delivered them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord would be moved to pity by their groaning because of those who persecuted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they would relapse and behave worse than their ancestors, following other gods, worshiping them, and bowing down to them. They would not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I need a math teacher's help to understand what 0.25 FTE is. Did everybody else get that? Today, we are going to talk about um, this idea of patterns. But before we do that, I want to introduce our uh, series for the sermon here, uh, for the sermons that are to come. We're going to be in the book of Judges for the next several weeks, and the title of the series is Imperfect. And um, I'm particularly proud of the naming of this series because there's a, 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 some layers to this title, Imperfect. We are imperfect, you are imperfect, and I am imperfect. You have never met somebody who is not imperfect. All you know for the whole of your life, is imperfection. God, on the other hand, is perfect. And I like this word imperfect as a series title because the words perfect and imperfect are both in the title. And you can see it uh, in the backdrop that Katie made for us. The great I am, the I'm perfect is in there, as well as the word imperfect. And so it sort of captures the range of thought that we're going to be in for the uh, series. And so we're going to be talking about the imperfection that's an integral part of what it means to be a human being. And I was thinking about this, and I realized the reason we are aware of our imperfections, the reason we are aware of other people's imperfections, even though that's all we've known, it's the only water we know, how do we know water is wet? Because there is something that is perfect. How do you know what perfection is? Why does that concept even exist in your brain? It's because Somewhere in our subconscious, in the way that we were created, there is an image of God in which we are created that is perfect. 
There is some place we used to be. There is some place we are meant for. There is someone. There is a love. There is a way. There is a reality that we were created for, and that reality is perfect. The Bible says it this way, that God has put eternity in our hearts. You didn't put it there. There's a timelessness in our hearts. There are these deep longings. And one of the arguments, the pieces of evidence that I always think about for the very existence of God himself is this very principle. That if you are aware of something that doesn't exist, why? Where does it come from? How do you know? And, you know, C.S. Lewis's simple example is if a man is hungry, it doesn't prove that he's going to get bread. But it does show that he was meant to eat. Why else would he feel hunger? Where does that hunger come from? He has a belly. It's meant to be filled with nutritious things. And the body is created, hardwired to be able to process that and use it for energy, for sustenance. And he says, why do you have comments like, oh, that flew by or this is taking so long. How, how are you aware of the concept of time in the first place? Why aren't you just going through time without any awareness of it? Unless there is something that the experience of time is contrasted against, this eternity in your heart. Why would a fish suddenly become aware of water and feel uncomfortable in the water and say, this is so wet. I'm so tired of being wet. Is there something that's not so wet? C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, if you are really, truly the byproduct of a materialistic universe, why would you be aware of something other than material things? You're just substance. You're just molecules. You're just what you can concretely experience. If that's really all you are, the byproduct of a materialistic process, why are you aware of the process? I think it's a fair question. I've wrestled with it quite a bit, and I have not found a good answer for it. And so that's what I want to present to you as we start this series, that God alone is perfect. Only the great I am is perfect. And you have been made in the image of perfection. There is some version of you that some part of you is aware of. You know you fall short. But you know you are meant to be that way. You know it. If you think about it, it's true. And so uh, we're going to be talking about that in this series. Okay, today... I want to start with this idea of patterns because it explains the book of Judges in one word. The Israelites lived a life of patterns, and we see this pattern played out over and over and over again. If you read the book of Judges, one chapter of it, you've read every single chapter of it because every chapter is exactly the same because it's just a repeating pattern. So for us, here's... Uh, I want to get us thinking about patterns this way. If something happens once, maybe it's their fault. If something happens twice, then maybe it's just unfortunate. But if something happens three times, then it's a pattern. And if it's a pattern, then some part of it is also about you. Now, if you think about this and you start looking at your life through this paradigm, you begin to see that your life is full of patterns. You've had the same kind of conversations over and over and over again. If you look at the conversations you've had with your spouse, if you're a married person, your children and your friends can identify for you if you can't 
the patterns in that relationship. They've been observing the same thing over and over again. And most of them are quite bored by it by now. They don't understand. <laughs> they don't understand why you can't see it. It's not new. It's not different. And it's not about them. It is about you. You are a contributing member of that pattern. I have this one story, and I, as I was thinking about how to tell it, it's, I don't know who all is in the room, but it sort of jumps out at me as something powerful. So uh, just a little disclaimer here as I tell this story. When I was a pastor uh, in a different city on the East Coast, uh, there was a woman who came to see me for counsel, and uh, the reason was that she, for the third time, was finding herself in a relationship with a guy, and this time it's her husband who was hitting her. And she was flustered, she was upset, and uh, I thought for the first time, maybe in her life, she was wanting to... uh, have a little more agency in this pattern that was developing in her life. And she said to me, she said, do I have a sign on my forehead that says, hit me? And I sat there, and I did not know what to say, but I had a thought. That's how all my patterns start. I don't know what to do with it, but I have a thought. (laughs) And the rest is downhill from there. (laughs) And it was really difficult. And here was my answer. I said, maybe? Do you want to explore that possibility? And she took it really well. She said, I'm ready to talk about it. Let's talk about this. Let's explore this together. And from then on, it never has happened again. I want to pause here and ask you to think about the stories in your life, the patterns What patterns exist in your life? Here are some of my thoughts about patterns. I find that patterns are expressions of human imperfection. And patterns are usually deeply rooted, more deeply rooted than we realize at first. More deeply rooted than we realize the first year of discovering that we have a pattern. As you work through this, as you drill into that pattern, you find it rooted even deeper and deeper, year after year after year. And after years and even decades and seasons of Drilling into this pattern, you realize how deep the roots truly go. And so I think that human imperfections existing as patterns are rooted. And by definition, patterns are repeating. They persist in your life in ways that I think overpower our ability to root them out by ourselves. It has been my experience that I cannot help myself break patterns all by myself. I need help. I need a support system. I need voices. I need eyes. I need people who are willing to stick with me, who are willing, as deep as the roots of those patterns go, to root into my life and their relationship and connection to me and stay for the long haul. That's been my experience personally and as I've worked as a pastor. I have found that patterns often uh, exist in part because I live in denial. And if other people point out patterns to me, my immediate reaction is to become defensive and deny that they exist or that they are true. I can't help it. And I have found that I don't realize that I'm defensive or in denial because of the deep self-deception that clouds me. It's not that I kind of think they're right, but I sincerely believe they are wrong because I am deceived. 
the Bible teaches that above all else, the heart is deceitful. And if you've lived, if you've walked just, just a little bit on earth, you know this is true for other people. It's so clear with them. Because that's the nature of self-deception. Yourself is deceived. Super clear with others. And so there's a kind of delusion that we live in. We walk about as if these things don't exist. We're pretty happy and dumb. Dumb and happy. That's delusion. I have found for myself and I think for those around me, if you listen, you'll see this pattern too. We often oscillate, swing back and forth between being the victim or being the hero. When we tell stories, listen to the way people tell stories about the painful or catastrophic or annoying things in their life. They usually come out as either the victim or they're the hero. Some version of this swing, back and forth, back and forth. We have a deep, deep aversion to taking responsibility. We don't want to admit that we play a part. We don't want to play victim or hero on paper if you asked us Right, just directly, we would generally not say yes to that. But in reality, there's a part of us that really wants to stay a child. We don't want to be an adult. Somehow, we just want it to go away. We don't want to admit that we play a part and that we have agency in the matter. That there are things we can own. <clears throat> and I think... Really, at the heart of it, there is a core truth that patterns reveal to us about ourselves. And this core truth is painful, and we're afraid to face that reality, that level, that intensity, that kind of potentially damning truth about ourselves. And so the world turns around and around, history repeating itself again and again. The experience that the Israelites have for about 300 years, the judges rule the Israelites, why does it have to take so long? Because it's so core to who we are, because patterns are rooted in the fact that we are imperfect. So going into Judges more specifically, uh, in the history of Israel, it occurred, the season of life for the Israelites occurred between Joshua. Remember, the Israelites became slaves in Egypt, and then God raised up Moses to take the Israelites out of Egypt, and then Moses died, never having entered the promised land, right? Just right there at the outside of it, he died. And then God raised up Joshua, who was like a... Uh, a disciple of Moses, and then um, Joshua died. And so between Joshua and Israel's first king was Saul. This time period lasted about 300 years, the scholars say. And because the book of Judges tells us how long each judge lived and that kind of thing, we sort of do some rough math, and we got help from Lauren Dolby, and we were able to figure out it's about 300 years that the judges ruled the Israelites. Right, um, And the last judge uh, was the prophet Samuel. And so we have a list of judges, and we'll go through them as we go through this series. Uh, but basically, it's the same story repeating itself. So the Israelites would constantly turn to other gods. And that's kind of an important thing. And if we unpack that as we will be doing, we'll see that we do the same thing now. Nothing has changed. So this season actually extends to us today. But historically speaking, God was revealing himself to humanity in seasons. 
And this was a time when God was sort of competing with other so-called gods more explicitly. Like we don't call consumerism God or we don't call our physical appearance God or, you know, the relationship to food or status. We don't say that's God, right? Our, the things that we want for security like money or power, we don't say that's God. But back then everything was a God. And so God was competing with these other gods, and God was in the process of revealing to human beings the truth that there's actually only one God. There's no such thing as gods, in fact, that Yahweh is the name of a specific being called God, and nothing else is God's. Everything else is created. There's only one creator, but people didn't know that. There was sort of a uh, place in the spiral of development of the human consciousness that they were at. And so God is trying to reveal to Israel, through the people of Israel, then onto other people groups, that Yahweh is the only God. God is not like, a, you know, a, there is not a plurality of them. There really is no competition. So this is the time period in history, but Israel keeps sort of straying from this fundamental truth. And they worship gods like Baal. So, um, and they're, they're sort of, uh, because of the sort of the young age of human beings, they're, they're sort of at that place where they understand corporal punishment. I remember when we were raising our kids and, uh, you know, um, our first child would pick up like a bowl of food and throw it across the room because they're just a little kid and they have no ability to understand that you can't do that. They're just learning about their own movement. They just have woken up to the reality of this thing in front of them called hand. And if they sort of think about it and they can grab it and then they sort of think another thought and goes flying across the room, they don't understand what's going on. That's where they're at. Their brain is there, right? Cause and effect. And so the only language that children speak at that age is sort of the language of pain. And so I remember a friend of ours said, you know, you don't have to give them a bruise, but just a little slap somewhere where they feel the little sting of something so it just communicates to them that don't do that. That's not helpful. It's not good. And so we experimented with that. So next time a football went flying, it's a little slap on the hand. Ouch. What, what, what is this thing I feel? It's pain. And so God was sort of in that stage with the Israelites. And so Israel would worship other gods. They would do all these things. God just, you know, sort of the age of rules at that time too. Because they didn't understand the spirit of the law. So they understood sort of the legalities of the law. And so they would do things. And then God would sort of smack them on their hands. Don't do that. And that happened for about 300 years. And then the people uh, of Israel, the Israelites would like the judge and listen to the judge. And then they sort of lose interest in the judge. And then they sort of start disobeying again. And then the judge would die. And then they sort of run amok and, you know, wheels come off the wagon. And then God would send another judge and just go like this over and over again. And so we have this verse that captures for us uh, verse 19, the entire book of Judges basically. Verse 19 says this, But whenever the judge died, they would relapse and behave worse than their ancestors, following other gods, worshiping them and bowing down to them. They would not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. This is basically true of every human being that has ever lived to this day. If you've been in a relationship with somebody that you knew needed to change, just quote him this verse. This is true of human nature. This pattern is evidence of the imperfection of human beings. So here's what I want us to do for the rest of our time today. I want us to think about the patterns of our church. I want to help define our church. And I think we as a church have an opportunity to name and either break or take on some new patterns. I want to also mention at this point that patterns are not all bad as a category. 
You know, God is full of patterns. He is a predictable God. The Bible says that God does not change. And the Bible's very positive word for patterns as applied to God himself is the word faithful. God is faithful. He will repeatedly stay with me. He will never leave me or forsake me. God will always love me. God will always forgive me. He will always walk with me. He will love me to the end because he, in the most amazing ways, is dull and boring. And I need dull and boring because I am so inconsistent. And I need him to repeat those patterns over and over again in my life. And so not all patterns are bad. But this idea that the Israelites lived the pattern over and over again applies to us, not just individually, but corporately as a church. So I want to talk about some of the patterns of our church. And patterns are created over time through repeated action. And so patterns can be broken through deliberate repeated action over time as well. If we can name and then do something deliberate and repeat it again and again over time, we can break those patterns. But it's going to take some naming and deliberating and taking action and doing it repeatedly. And so let me describe uh, the churches. Julie and I have been working on this for a couple of weeks. And we've struggled because we don't know. And not all of us were there. Not all parts of us that are here today looking back were there at that time. And so I'm doing my best. And for those of you that have been here and I get some of this wrong, uh, please forgive me. Uh, Church eras, thinking about the history of our about 80-year-old church here. The first season of our church I'm calling Fits and Starts because it was kind of just a Bible study group, our church, when we started. And uh, it didn't really get off the ground. And so uh, different leaders would swap out. And actually, I am senior pastor number 14 at this church. And the name Evergreen Covenant Church is the sixth name of our church in the 80 years that we've been a church. Uh, so, you know, Julie and I looked through the history of our church and we just counted, named all the pastors and named all the names. And there we are. Fits and starts. And then um, the next season is uh, what I would call the gold rush. And it's sort of the Bud Palmberg, Bud and Donna Palmberg era. And if you want to hear uh, from them, they are right there. <laughs> This church is that old. <laughs> Older. <laughs> and John Lindbergh that Katie talked about, he was 95 and a quarter or 95 and a half or something. And he was here pretty much from the beginning. It's amazing. I mean, when John Lindbergh preached, he talked about the Great Depression as something he lived through. Talked about President Roosevelt. <laughs> Amazing, right? Perspective. Uh, but this gold rush years when there was a huge sort of influx of Scandinavians into the Seattle land area. And so along with the whole bay, the tide was rising and, you know, Evergreen or uh, what was the island church or something like that? Island Covenant Church, it was called at that time. Uh, the, the boat Island Covenant Church started rising along with the tide. And so there was a huge influx. And Bud was this amazing preacher. And Donna was engaged even more than she is today, if you can believe that. And gifts and grace and sort of the, um, uh, the community all around this church caused this church to grow. And as people came, they did life together. There was a strong sort of corporate identity, a group identity. And they were in each other's lives. And even during John Lindbergh's memorial service last week, people talked about that, how they did everything together. Ups and downs and left and right. It was kind of like summer love. It was like super club. Because they were doing all these missional cool things as a church, as a church should. But they also lived life together. And it became established for the first time as a church. It became rooted. The gold rush, really beautiful image. And I love that. I love the feeling I get when I think about that way of life together as a church. 
And then there was uh, a season that I'm calling new again. These new endeavors at the church. This church tried on evangelism as a vision. They really tried hard to reach people who are not in the church. And then they really tried hard to become sort of uh, a community-oriented church. They wanted to stay connected to the people beyond the walls of the church and become sort of uh, part of the social fabric of the island. The church also began to experience a precipitous drop in attendance. I think, uh, but forgive me if I'm misquoting you, but uh, at its peak, the church was maybe about 700 people or something like that. Okay, I'm getting the nod, so that's good. So in truth, I mean, he's a preacher, so it's, it was probably like 500 is uh, what it was. But the church began to dip, and I, I, did, I wasn't here, but I saw the chart, and it just, it dipped. And then uh, they went through a process called veritas, which means truth. And they wanted to know, what is the core truth about this church? What are the patterns about this church? How do we begin to shift? How do we switch tracks? How do we turn the tanker? And so out of that process, they identified a kind of leadership they felt that they needed given the new realities that had emerged all around them. And that happens to any organization, right? The organization is on a certain path, but the culture and the world around them begins to change, and they have to change along with it. And I was a part of the result of that. And then the first season of my time here, I'm in my seventh year now, I am calling... uh, translation, and I have in my own notes, lost in translation, uh, because I, I was so categorically different than anything that the church had had. I look different. I sound different. You know, I sort of think different, and I wasn't there for everyone, but that's what other people have told me, that it's sort of, there's a little bit of a shock factor to who and how I am. And I think it was kind of, uh, maybe, I don't know the medical term so well, but kind of a triage work that I did, stemming the blood flow, because this church self-identified as what's called a critical moment and at-risk church. That's what I was told. That's what the Veritas team said. That's what the members of the congregation self-identified as. We're going to die, is what I was told, unless we really get some intentional help as an organization. And so they brought me on to help with that. Big mistake. Uh, And then I think we are entering a new season right now uh, called, I'm calling it the third way. You know, there's sort of this binary view of how a church had to be. And here we are saying, no, there's a third way of being. That's the way Jesus was. That's That's the way the early church was. And that's the way that we are called to be at this time, especially at this time. And we talked about what it means to be an integrative church, what it means to contend with culture and not be sort of opposed to it or become of it, but to contend with it, to be engaged with the culture. And what it means to be this church in such a time as this. And we're calling it Third Way. I want to tell a little bit of a story about where that came from. For me, this season, this current season that we're at, started for me, I think, about a year and a half ago in the city of Spokane. I was at a conference, a worship conference, and I was listening to this, prof- this professor talk about what's, what's called the third race. There's this early Christian document, uh, an exchange of letters between a Roman officer and a, a sort of a newborn first-generation Christian. And this is an exchange between these two cultures and people groups. And this Roman officer has identified Christians as what he's calling the third race. Because Rome and her citizens were considered to be the first race. They were syncretistic. They took whatever existed all around them and they just appropriated it for the good of Rome and the glory of Rome. It didn't matter what religion you were, what your worldview was. As long as it was helpful to you becoming a Roman citizen... It was all good. It was pluralistic and syncretistic. And then there were these sort of isolationists called Jews. Jews, they didn't want to be like the Romans. They also didn't want to sort of live with the Romans. They lived within Rome's uh, domain, but as their own isolated group. And these were the Jews. And they were considered to be the second race. 
And then after this guy, Jesus, came and went, there's a third race that emerged. And this race was unlike any other in that they were just like Roman citizens. They prayed for and worked towards the welfare of the city. They cared about the citizens of Rome. They cared about Rome's agendas. And yet their allegiance remained firmly rooted towards God himself. That's something that didn't exist back then. And so the uh, Roman soldier was going, who are these people? How can they be so good for Rome and yet their allegiance is towards this man named Christ? How can they be both and? How can they be in the world but not of the world? It did not make any sense. Why do they love us as a country, and yet they love Christ. They don't separate themselves out like the Jews. They're not of us like the other Roman citizens. Who are these people? That was the third race. And the reason that this is so fascinating and so powerful for me is because I really believe this is the way we're supposed to be today because that's the way Christians were always meant to be. In fact, even when the Israelites were taking captivity, uh, God said to them, I want you to pray for the welfare of your captors. I want you to work for their good. I want you to show them that they are loved and seen by God. I want your allegiance to be towards me, but I don't want you to separate yourself. I don't want you to become of them either. I want you to be both and. And then the, when the first church was birthed, that was the command to the church also. I want you to love people and seek the welfare of everyone around you, but I want your identity and your reason, your meaning, your purpose to derive from the person of Christ. Can you do that? And so when I heard this, I was weeping. I was weeping and I could not stop because it so resonated with something that I feel called to be. And I realized the reason that I started all these churches before coming here and I believed in the church so much is because I knew the ideal church would be a third culture kind of church, a third race, that we would exist in a third way. It would not be either or, but it would be both and. Invisible, but influential. Can we be that? And so a personal revival began to happen in my heart. I began to believe in the church again. That seed was planted in me again, and God began to water it. It's taken about a year and a half for me to get here. But I want you to know, I want to be part of that kind of church again. And I think we are called to be that kind of church. You, if you are a Christian, are meant to be in the world. You cannot hate culture. You cannot hate politics. You cannot hate people and the ways that people are. They are imperfect. And you are called to go be in their lives as an ambassador of Christ with the light of Christ shining through you. Your job is not to judge them and to keep distance from them or to isolate yourself from them, but to be with them. Go live where they live. Go work where they work. Learn their language. Learn their ways. Keep your conscience clean before God, but live in love towards the people that surround you. Can you do it? That is what it means to be a Christian. That is, that is what being a Christian has always meant. I left the church that I grew up in when I was a high school student because I loved the church so much and that church was so painful for me to be in. And then when I was in college, I spoke out against college Christian groups on campus. There were 36 of them at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and all of them seemed less than ideal, especially the ones that had an ethnic name like Korean Campus Crusade for Christ or Chinese Christian Fellowship, I spoke out against them. I met with their leaders and said, you got to take the word Chinese or Korean or African American, whatever it is, out of your name because it's a hindrance to the gospel. Why? If you don't speak the language or meet some very specific, acute cultural need, do you have to have the name that way? Because me, 
I don't identify with those names. I don't know what I am ethnically or culturally. So I need to be able to come and I need to be able to bring my friends, but I can't if you are called Korean Campus Crusade for Christ. And so I spoke out against them. And then right after college, I abandoned the track to become a doctor. And I went to seminary and I started starting churches. And I started six of them. And each time I kept wanting to do better the next time. And so I guess I love the church. I guess I believe in the church. And right now, I really, really want to ask you to do church together the right way, the third way. When I was being hired at Evergreen, I'm sorry I'm going a little bit long today. I'll finish up really soon here. Uh, When I was being hired at the church, uh, there was a sort of less public document that I was uh, given. And uh, it said this, that here are the six things that we want our next senior pastor to be. We believe coming out of the Veritas process. We believe that our next senior pastor is meant to be female. I took that to mean emotionally intelligent. (laughs) I have three sisters and four daughters. Check. (laughs) The next trait that they were looking for is a young person with a young family with kids, you know. Because they had identified that this is sort of our target group. Every time you do a vision statement, you have to identify a target group. And that was it. They said this sort of center pole allows all the other groups to exist in a stable and healthy way. So let's go for that, they said. And then the third trait was, we want this person uh, to have a military family of origin. The way I interpreted that is, we want this person to be third culture, culturally fluid, culturally intelligent, able to navigate all different kinds of cultures because they began to see that Seattle land was changing, that it was going to be more diverse than it had ever been. So we needed somebody who knew how to do that. And then fourth, we want this person to have church planting experience. That's me. And then uh, fifth, we think that maybe if we had to name a specific ethnicity of this person, maybe Asian, because that's the other sort of group that we saw growing up around us. Lots of Asians. Bellevue is the first minority-majority city in the state of Washington. Did you know that? That happened last year. And most of those uh, non-whites uh, are Asian, Indian and Chinese to be more specific. And if you've been to Crossroads Mall, you know this is true. <laughs> or the Costco in Issaquah, you know this is true. And then lastly, we want this person to be a reader and a learner. And that's also me. So I looked at this list of six things and I said, that's me. They want me? Really? <laughs> I can do these things. I can be these things. I already am. And so I said, yes. And so here I am. And so here here are three patterns of the church that I want to name for us. And this first one is diverse. This was in the vision of the church out of the Veritas process. And I think I'm naming what's already happening. But I want to invite us to be even more deliberate and personal in our deliberation about it. Collectively, I would say non-whites would name this church as a white church. Culturally, it feels to me like a white church. If you sort of look, you see non-whites, but the dominating culture, the defining culture is white. But I think there is a call that the original group identified that still holds even more true today, that God's calling us to be more diverse. And so if you are white in here, awesome. I always thought if you want to mix a great can of paint, you got to start with a white base. <laughs> Just perfect. <laughs> so I want to challenge you individually. Like, eat food that's not white. Make friends with people who are not white. Learn about things for, for people that are not white, from people that are not white. Just diversify your life a little bit. And then bring that sort of way of being into the church. That'll help so much, being to add drops of color into the white base. Second thing is 80-20. It is true that 20% of the people bear the weight of 80% of the church. 
If you look at the numbers of our church, it's roughly true. In terms of people who volunteer, people who come to church at least three, four times a month, people who give financially. I want to know how do we flip it from the 2080 to become an 80-20 church where 80% of our church are tithing. 80% of our church come to church three to four times a month. And 80% of our church participate and engage in the life of the church. How do we spread the weight around to 80% instead of just leaving it on the 20%? Can we do this? And then this is a pattern uh, that this church has a long, rich history of doing. I have heard story after story after story of heroic love coming from the people of this church. When somebody is in need, people rise up and love the people that are in need. I know this to be true, but now more than ever, we have to speak this universal language that is love because everyone understands the language of love. Not everybody understands Christianese, unfortunately. Not everybody understands Bible, but everybody understands love. So when you meet somebody who's not a Christian or nominal or wounded or hurt or whatnot, you have to speak their language, and you know it. It's love. So these are the three patterns I would invite us to be deliberate and repeating over time about. Diversity, love, and 80-20. And we close with this verse. I want us to humble ourselves, recognize our imperfection against the backdrop of the great I am who alone is perfect. I want to invite you to become a child and learn from God's perfection, from his vision, his values. So here we are, a verse that I came across this week, Psalm 131, it says this, and I want to invite you to close your eyes. This is our prayer. Oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Amen.